We'll be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 29, Genesis 29, and we'll read verses 1 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it, for out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. Then he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. So he said to them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. Then he said, Look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. Now while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative, that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. Then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah his daughter and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week, so he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went in to Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Violence does, in truth, recoil upon the violent, and the schemer falls into the pit which he digs for another. That's Arthur Conan Doyle. That's actually a quote from The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, number eight. 
And the reason that I quote that is to make the point that even outside of the Scriptures, the world loves the idea of what we call poetic justice. Every good story includes an element of poetic justice, right? The, the nerdy kid grows up, starts a company, gets wealthy, and the bully who used to torment him is forced to come and beg him for a job. Hamlet seeks vengeance against his father's murderer and becomes a murderer himself and is then killed. Mr. Bumble and Oliver Twist suffers the same fate he inflicted on so many children, poor and living in the workhouse. Saruman meets his end at the hands of Wormtongue after treating him with such contempt. And this sort of reversal is a pattern that we see in the scriptures as well. Pharaoh ordained that all the male children of the Hebrews would be cast into the Nile River and drowned. He is later drowned in the Red Sea. Korah led a rebellion against Moses that caused a split and a division among the people. The Lord then splits the earth open and consumes Korah. Ahab had Naboth killed and the dogs licked up his blood. Elijah the prophet is then sent to him to say, Thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. And a chapter later, Ahab is killed in battle, and when they wash the chariot in which he died, the dogs come and lick up his blood. Haman built a gallows intending to hang Mordecai on it, but the king's sleepless night reverses their fortunes, and Haman is then hanged on his own gallows. The Bible is replete with stories such as these, with these sorts of poetic reversals. Truly, Elipaz spoke to Job, saying, Even as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Solomon says the same thing in the Proverbs. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of his sin. The world says that, and this is a quote, poetic justice is an example of how the universe balances out. If you do something bad, then it will come back to bite you in the end. Well, that sounds like what we know as the popular idea of karma. Yesterday, we all woke up to quite a bit of snow in our driveways, and I, I read one post on the Lapeer discussion group on Facebook of a man that had spent the night at his sister's house. And he woke up and went out to leave and found not only had all this snow fallen, but the snow plow had come by and pushed it all up behind his vehicle. And so he's out there with a shovel trying to dig out all this heavy snow. And another man comes walking down the street and starts helping him shovel it out. He finds out that man is the pastor at the church that he grew up in as a kid. And so he's thankful for the man's help. And he concludes his account with this rather strange sentence. God bless this man. He's a great human, and I hope he has good karma for the rest of his life. Speaking of a pastor and using the language of God bless him, the blessing that he hopes for, doesn't pray for, he hopes for, is for good karma. For the universe, not God, to balance itself out by repaying this man for his kind deed. But as we saw this morning in CLA, all things are under the control of Almighty God. And so David tells us in the Psalms, it's not karma. It's not some impersonal balancing force in the universe, but rather it is the direct supervision of God as judge. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared 
in the work of his own hands. David even prays for this in Psalm 10. The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Well, now that's all fine and good when it happens to the wicked, but it also happens in the life of believers. In the New Testament, we see the same sort of pattern, perhaps better termed poetic irony. Peter denies Christ three times, and then three times Christ asks Peter, do you love me? Saul, later known as the Apostle Paul, stood by and watched while Stephen was stoned in Acts 7. Later, the Jews at Lystra stoned Paul. Somehow Barnabas doesn't get caught up in the stoning, and he was right there with Paul. It's poetic irony. Of course, by the grace of God, Paul survived his stoning, and in some miraculous way, that event actually serves the glory of God. Paul persecuted the church, which was called by the name of Christ. He caused much suffering, and so God tells him that he will preach the name of Christ to the nations and suffer much for the sake of Christ's name. So we see this pattern of poetic justice or poetic irony is there even in the lives of believers, and we see Much the same thing happening in our text this morning in the life of Jacob. He has gone on a journey to find a wife, but the reason that he has undertaken this journey at this specific time is because Jacob had to flee from his brother Esau who wanted to kill him because of his deception. He had bargained for the birthright, but then he had stolen the blessing by deception. The blessing was supposed to be his by the word of the Lord, But Jacob didn't wait for the Lord. He took matters into his own hands. He deceived his father, impersonated his brother, and got away with the blessing. It served God's plan, but it was sinful on Jacob's part. So he's forced to flee his brother's wrath, and his parents take the the circumstance and this opportunity uh, to try and get some good out of it by sending him to find a wife among his mother's relatives in Syria Padan Aram in the city of Haran. In chapter 28, we saw Jacob encounter God in a dream. He receives the blessing and the promises directly from God, and he responds there with worship and a vow of obedience. God has said that he would be with him wherever he goes. Well, this morning, our text picks up with Jacob completing his journey. It says in verse 1, So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And this reminds us that he has left the promised land in a sort of exile. Just as Abraham's servant uh, left and went to find a wife for Isaac and came to a well, so too Jacob comes to a well outside of town. And this well is surrounded by a large field where the flocks could be gathered. Some commentators think it's the same well Abraham's servant came to. I, I don't think it is because the descriptions are so radically different. This well has a large stone rolled over the mouth of it. The practice and the custom was that all of the flocks would be gathered in this field and then the stone would be moved and the flocks would be watered. So Jacob begins to interact with the shepherds that are there whose flocks have already been gathered and he he questions them as to where they're from and he finds that he's reached his destination. They are from Haran, and they know his uncle Laban. In fact, they tell him that Laban's daughter, Rachel, is approaching even then with a flock. So Jacob responds in verse 7. Then he said, look, it's still high day. It's not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. 
It's almost as if Jacob is trying to get rid of these other shepherds. He wants to be there to greet his cousin in privacy. But they respond to him in verse 8, and they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together, and they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. Now, most commentators uh, take are of the opinion here that this stone was so large, it took the combined effort of all the shepherds to move it. And the text does say in verse 3 that it was a large stone. But it could be that it's just simply the custom that we don't remove the stone and water the sheep until everyone has gathered their flocks here in order to make sure that the water is shared equally and no one is left out. So while Jacob talks to the shepherds about this, Rachel has approached with her flock. Now while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the mouth's well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Notice that three times it uses the phrase Laban, his mother's brother. Jacob is very moved by the fact that he has come here at this exact time when Rachel is coming to water the flocks. Abraham's servant had arrived at a well just when Rebekah appeared. Now Jacob has arrived at a well just when Rachel appears. And Jacob appears to have been moved by this uh, divine providence that has brought him there at just this time. He responds with action. He single-handedly moves the stone and waters Rachel's flock. Now, if it was, in fact, a massive stone, then this is a a feat of supernatural strength that proves God's presence with Jacob. But even if it wasn't a large stone, and Jacob is only breaking the, the local custom, it shows his excitement, his enthusiasm at having been led there at exactly this time to encounter his relative. So Jacob then greets Rachel with a kiss and weeps for joy. This had to have made an impression on Rachel. Not that the kiss was inappropriate, it wasn't, it's just a form of greeting. But this stranger demonstrates his strength, his independence, he he moves the stone, he greets her in this intimate way, and then weeps emotionally. It's a strange sight. This stranger is strong and emotional and tender. Well, then he tells her who he is. And just as Rebecca had run to tell her family, that Abraham's servant had come. So Rachel now runs to tell her father of Jacob's appearance. We've seen this sort of repetition before in the lives of the patriarchs, and we're seeing it again here in Jacob's life. Laban, when he hears the news, is excited, and so he runs to greet Jacob. He greets him with a kiss, and he brings him back to his home. Now, remember that Jacob is 77 years old at this point. Isaac and Rebekah were married for 20 years before the boys were born, which means it's been 97 years since Laban saw his sister. 97 years, almost 100 years since Rebekah left home. It's a joyful reunion. He's excited to meet his nephew, his sister's son. And notice what happens here in verse 13. And it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. All these things. What things? Probably the whole story. The birthright, 
the blessing, Esau's rage, Jacob's journey, uh, his dream and blessing from God, his, his object of his journey to find a wife. Remember, he had come to find a wife from Laban's family. He's trying to convince Laban that he's good husband material. Look, I have the birthright. I have the blessing. God has spoken to me. I'd make a good husband for one of your daughters. So Laban welcomes him as family. Jacob stays with him for a month, we're told. And during this month, Jacob is not idle. He's working. And so after a month of observing what a good laborer Jacob is, Laban offers to keep him on and to pay him. He says in verse 15, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now here's where things get interesting. Laban has two daughters, Rachel, whom Jacob had met at the well, and her older sister, Leah. Verse 17 describes the two sisters to us. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now, it's not clear what it means when it says that her eyes were delicate or or tender. Uh, Some translations say weak, but it's not clear from the Hebrew that that's what it means. In fact, some commentators suggest it could mean that she had very beautiful eyes, that her eyes were delicate and lovely. It could mean that she had weak eyes and that they were sensitive to light. Maybe she squinted a lot. We don't know. But commentators do agree on one point. It's clear from the text that whatever the situation with Leah, Rachel outshone her. Rachel was beautiful in every way, in form and appearance. And Jacob loved Rachel, not Leah. And so he responds in verse 18, Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Jacob, remember, had come on foot. In fact, verse 1, when it says he continued on his journey, literally, the Hebrew says he lifted up his feet. He's walking. He didn't come with a caravan of camels loaded down with treasure the way Abraham's servant did. He came on foot in a hurry to escape Esau's anger. He has no wealth with him. He has no treasure to give Laban as a bride price for a wife. And so he offers his labor for seven years. Now that's a pretty high price. Laban had been willing to pay Jacob, but now he readily takes advantage of Jacob's impulsive offer. But Laban's a bit cagey about it. Notice that he never really agrees in so many words. He just says it'd be better for her to marry Jacob than some stranger to the family and that Jacob should stay with him. And as R.C. Sproul points out, quote, Laban does not mention Rachel by name in Genesis 29:19. Laban only says it is better to give her to his nephew without specifying who this her will be. It's pretty cagey. It's, it's sort of an agreement with Jacob's proposal, but it's one that left some wiggle room. But Jacob thought that they had a deal. He understood the deal to be that he was working for Rachel. And so it tells us in verse 20, So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Oh, I've always read that verse that way. Oh, isn't that sweet? He loved her that much. And he did. That's what the verse says. He loved her so much that seven years seemed as if it was just a few days. But we need to remember Jacob's 77 years old. 
He's 84 at the end of that seven years. This is not puppy love. Jacob was a mature, responsible man. We've already seen. This love is likewise mature. It's not childish. And also notice the language that it says that those seven years seemed but a few days. Now, where have we heard that phrase before? Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban and Haran, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away. Rebekah said that Jacob would need to stay with Laban for a few days until Esau got over his anger and she could send for him. But Jacob serves for seven years, and they seem to him as if they were a few days. We're meant to see that connection there. His few days turned into many years. Rebekah and Jacob's scheming cost them a lot of years apart. And remember that as far as we can discern from the Scriptures, Rebekah never sees her son again. Now, when the seven years are over, Laban doesn't offer his daughter up voluntarily. Jacob has to remind him, hey, we had a deal. Seven years are up. It's time. So he says in verse 21, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go into her. So Laban throws a feast, a wedding feast, it seems. All the family and friends are gathered, and that night he takes Leah, not Rachel, to Jacob's tent. Now, Jacob has been at the wedding feast, probably consuming some wine. It's the dark of night. The bride is veiled, brought to the tent. Jacob goes into her, and he doesn't notice until the next morning that it's Leah, that he's been deceived. And so he responds in verse 25, So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? Now, there's some irony in Jacob asking that question. Why have you deceived me, given his own history of deception? So Laban explains, well, it's just it's not customary to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older. Now, this might, as some commentators suggest, indicate that Leah really did have bad eyes and Laban had had trouble finding a husband for her. And, and so he's trying to fix that by tricking Jacob. That's possible. But... This is Laban's excuse for his deception. Jacob is obliged to keep the marriage feast for seven days, and then Rachel becomes his wife as well. Both sisters are given one maid each to go with them into married life, and those maids will play a role in the next chapter as Jacob takes them as wives as well to bear children. But we'll examine that part of the story next week. But the story this morning ends in verse 30 this way. Then Jacob also went in to Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. Now let's consider the poetic justice that we see in this account in the life of Jacob. Jacob had received the blessing from his father Isaac by way of deception. And now the deceiver has been deceived. But there are four points in particular in this account that I would have us take note of. First, part of the blessing that Jacob received was the inheritance of the promised land. Back in chapter 28, Isaac had blessed him, saying uh, that God, he wanted God to give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. And yet, 
the one who is supposed to inherit the land, is exiled from it because of his brother's wrath. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east, not the promised land. Jacob leaves the promised land and he's gone for 20 years before he is able to return. The stolen blessing promised an inheritance in the land, but now he has become an exile from it. It's poetic justice. Second, Jacob had received as part of the blessing the promise that he would rule over others. Isaac had said, let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Isaac later tells Esau, indeed, I have made him your master and all his brethren. I have given him as servants. But now we find that instead of others serving him, Jacob has become a servant. Six times we're told here in chapter 29 that Jacob served Laban. And that servitude lasts 14 years for his two wives. And then we'll see another six years added to that later, in which time Laban will change Jacob's wages 10 times, defrauding him of what he is owed. The stolen blessing promised that he would rule, but now he has become a servant. There's poetic justice there. Third, Jacob's deception had involved switching the younger son for the older, right? Jacob, the younger son, pretended to be Esau, the older brother, in order to get the blessing. But now he's deceived with the opposite deception, the older daughter pretending to be the younger daughter. Jacob carried out his deception according to the plan devised by his mother. The deception against him is devised by the father, who happens to be his uncle, his mother's brother, quite a bit of poetic irony in this alone. Rebecca plotted to switch the younger brother for the older. Laban plots to switch the older daughter for the younger. And this brings us to the question of the two sisters and their respective roles in all of this. I think we can safely assume that during that first seven years, Jacob and Rachel probably talked to each other. Jacob is serving seven years for the right to marry Rachel I'm sure they talked about that. And if Rachel knew, then surely Leah did as well. The sisters had to have spoken. So what happened the night of this wedding feast? I mean, Rachel probably went into this thinking it was her wedding feast. What did Leah know ahead of time? At what point did Rachel become aware that this wasn't going to go how she thought it was going to go? Did her father put her under house arrest in her tent so she couldn't spoil his plan? I doubt that Rachel would have willingly gone along with it. Would Leah? Maybe. Maybe not. I kind of doubt Leah was involved in planning it with her father, though she did play along to some extent, right? She doesn't speak up that night and tell Jacob that it's her and not Rachel. But that could be explained for a couple of reasons. Many commentators speculate that Leah secretly loved Jacob and was more than happy to swindle her sister out of her wedding day, but that seems like quite a bit of speculation to me. I think it can be explained a little more simply than that just by looking at some hints that are in the text. Laban did not treat his daughters well. Later in the book, we'll see that as Jacob begins to to leave Laban, to go back to the promised land, he discusses his plan with his wives. 
Their father has changed his wages 10 times. He's not treating him with respect. God has told Jacob it's time to go home back to the promised land. And so he, he calls Rachel and Leah in and tells them that this is what the plan is. And here's their response. This is from chapter 31. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us and also completely consumed our money. Laban treated his own daughters like they were commodities to be bought and sold as if they were slaves. He had not given them any dowry. He had just taken Jacob's years of service as a bride price. He had left them no inheritance but had used up what should have been theirs. It's likely that given this sort of treatment, the sisters were compelled against their wishes in this matter of the marriage. Rachel was likely confined to her tent under guard, and Leah was probably compelled by threat from her father to go along with this plan. And in fear of her father and in hope probably to escape him, she does so. That seems to me probably the best way to understand the situation. But either way, Jacob is deceived into marrying the wrong girl. He loved Rachel, and he's tricked into marrying her sister, Leah. This brings us to the fourth point of poetic justice in this account. Jacob had been portrayed as the more godly, the more mature, spiritually minded of the two brothers. Esau was immature, worldly. What do we know of Esau at this point? Esau had taken two wives of the Canaanites and then a third from among Ishmael's daughters, while Jacob had remained free. He had had not gotten married. He had refused to engage in a polluted, corrupted marriage with a daughter of the Canaanites. But now, having been deceived into marriage with the wrong sister, Laban offers him this deal in verse 27, fulfill her week and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve me still another seven years. Agree to another seven years and you can marry the woman you intended to marry the woman that you love. And so he does. Matthew Henry comments and says, Hereby Laban drew Jacob into sin and snare and disquiet of multiplying wives, which remains a blot in his reputation and will be so to the end of the world. Honest Jacob did not design it, but to have kept as true to Rachel as his father had done to Rebekah. He that had lived without a wife to the 84th year of his age could then have been very well contented with one. But he could not refuse Rachel, for he had espoused her. Still less could he refuse Leah, for he had married her. Therefore, Jacob must be content to take two wives. And so Jacob is led into polygamy. Worse still, he will take both the sisters' maids to his bed as well, outdoing even Esau in corrupting the marriage bed. That's poetic irony. And that's the end of our text But we could continue looking at Jacob's life that we know is coming to see even more instances of poetic irony being played out. Esau went along with it, but Jacob was pretty mercenary when he purchased the birthright. I mean, a bowl of stew? Really? Laban has taken advantage of Jacob's love to get 14 years of service. But then in the next six years after that, he will change Jacob's wages ten times. 
because he's being mercenary, taking advantage. Poetic justice. Jacob's deception of Isaac, it involved, remember, covering his hands and the back of his neck with the skins of the young goats, the goats that he had killed so his mother could cook. Later, Jacob's own sons will deceive him by dipping Joseph's coat in the blood of a young goat. Jacob deceived Isaac by pretending to be his older brother Esau. He deceived his father concerning his father's favorite son. Jacob's own sons will deceive him concerning his favorite son, Joseph. There's a great deal of poetic justice and irony in Jacob's life. Matthew Henry again comments and says, It is easy to observe how Jacob was paid in his own coin. He had cheated his own father when he pretended to be Esau, and now his father-in-law cheated him. Herein, how unrighteous soever Laban was, the Lord was righteous. Even the righteous, if they take a false step, are sometimes thus recompensed on the earth. And that brings us to the main point of all this. God often uses the actions of others to cause us to see the exceeding sinfulness of our own actions. The poetic irony is that Jacob, the deceiver, is deceived. And when that happens, he ironically is indignant about it. When Laban makes his lame excuse, though, and it truly is a pretty lame excuse, the younger sister can't get married before the older one. I mean, if that was really true, Laban should have told Jacob that right at the beginning. He could have told him that at any point during that seven-year period, but he didn't. He didn't mention it until after the deception had been pulled off. He excused his sin by saying, I had no choice in the matter. Right? This is the custom, it's tradition, it's the way things have always been done. But it was an excuse. It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Oh, really? Because that's exactly what Jacob had done. He had put the younger before the firstborn. At that moment, Jacob experiences his deception from the other side. His sin became very real to him because it, the same deception was committed against him. We don't mind when the unrighteous experience poetic justice and get caught in their own nets, but we don't like it when it happens to us. It, it causes us to look in the mirror and confront the ugliness of our own sin. And sometimes when we're forced to look in that mirror, we respond with anger. We don't like what we see. And so like good hypocrites, we take out our anger on the mirror. We take it out on the person who's committed the sin against us that we ourselves are guilty of committing against others. Oftentimes we react the strongest to sin in other people that we're guilty of committing ourselves. But God does this for our good. He shows us that mirror for our sanctification. He means it to humble us, to move us to repentance and Christian maturity. Sometimes it takes another person acting sinfully against us for us to recognize our own sin, to cause us to seek the grace of Christ to put that sin to death. And to make matters worse, the wicked don't always get caught in their own net. Sometimes we see that the wicked prosper and suffer no justice in this life. And that disturbs us. It disturbed Jeremiah, the prophet who wrote, 
Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you, yet let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? Bothered Jeremiah to see that the wicked were not getting justice. Asaph writes in the psalm saying, For I envious was and grudged the foolish folk to see when I perceived the wicked sort enjoy prosperity. For still their strength continued firm. Their death of bands is free. They are not toiled like other men nor plagued as others be. Therefore their pride like to a chain them compasseth about and as a garment violence doth cover them throughout. Their eyes stand out with fat They have more than their hearts could wish. They are corrupt. Their talk of wrong both lewd and lofty is. They set their mouth against the heavens in their blasphemous talk. And their reproaching tongue throughout the earth at large doth walk. Behold, these are the wicked ones, yet prosper at their will. In worldly things they do increase in wealth and riches still. So we struggle to understand why sometimes the wicked prosper and don't get justice that they deserve, and yet God's own people sometimes experience this sort of poetic justice. As Asaph says a few verses later there in Psalm 73, Still grievous plagues all day I've borne, and I was chastened every morn. Sometimes it seems as though the wicked are getting away with it and God is holding us accountable for every little misstep. But that accountability is not punishment. It's discipline. It's chastisement. R.C. Sproul comments on our passage here in Genesis and says, God justly used Laban's treachery to teach the patriarch an important lesson about the proper way to lay hold of God's promises. It is as if the Lord said to Jacob, Yes, I have chosen you and am sovereignly using your transgressions for my purposes, but I do not approve of the way in which you have lived, and I now must discipline you for it. As Hebrews tells us, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's for our own good that God chastens us. And he often uses poetic justice in order to cause us to see our own sin as if in a mirror, to see the sinfulness of our own actions. And as for our concern about the wicked not experiencing justice, we but have to remember God's words to the Galatians. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And so we're encouraged to look beyond this world for justice and for the reward for our discipline. In fact, the whole story of the Bible is a story of reversal. Jesus has come to reverse the effects of the fall. He takes on flesh, becomes the Son of Man, that he might live a perfect life pleasing to the Father in our place. And then in what might appear to be the opposite of poetic justice, Christ suffers the punishment for our sins. He undoes the curse by taking it upon himself for our sake. 
but for his reward, he is given a people. Brian spoke of the covenant of redemption this morning in CLA, the covenant that God the Father and God the Son made before the foundations of the earth, that all those who believe and trust in Christ's work are given to him by the Father to be his people, his bride, to become his flesh and his bone, his body, we're called. In the end, we may, like Jacob, receive some poetic chastisement, but we don't get justice. We get grace. The wicked will get justice when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The righteous, those who have been redeemed by Christ's blood shed for them, made righteous by the application of his righteousness to us, will receive mercy. And so by working out scenes of poetic justice like we see in the life of Jacob, God is saying to the unsaved, flee from the wrath to come. Flee to Christ, the seed of Jacob, the Savior and only refuge who came into this world to save sinners. Otherwise, you will stand before the judgment seat and be held accountable for your actions. And to believers, God shows us by the example of Jacob that when we are faced with chastisement for our sins, sometimes in a poetic fashion like this, it causes us to look as if in a mirror and see our own sins reflected back at us, that we should learn the exceeding sinfulness of our sin and make renewed application to His grace to crucify and put to death our sin and to sow to the Spirit in assurance of everlasting life. Asaph later writes at the end of the psalm, When I this thought to know, it was too hard a thing for me, till to God's sanctuary I went, then their end I did see. He goes on to describe the judgment that the wicked will face on the last days, and then he concludes by saying, Thou, with thy, with thy counsel, though with thy counsel while I live, Wilt me conduct and guide, and to thy glory afterward receive me to abide. Whom have I in the heavens high but thee, O Lord, alone, and in the earth whom I desire besides thee there is none. Brothers and sisters, may this be our response to the Lord's righteous judgments and chastisements in our life, poetic or otherwise. May the cry of our heart be in union with Asaph's that there is none in heaven or earth that we desire other than Christ our Savior, who bore the just wrath of God in our place, that we might know his forgiveness, his mercy, and his grace. Let's pray.